Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and along with that, we are going to be talking to a dermatology expert today, Dr. Rebecca Luria, and we're going to be mentioning not just the big bad melanoma everyone's afraid of, but also those sneaky little squamous cell cancers and basal cell cancers and the type of skin issues that, you know, the skin's one of the few organs of the body that you can visually see what's going on. And in fact, sometimes when you can look at it and you have questions about it, the best thing to do is check with an expert. So we are going to go over some of the tips on how to identify whether those moles or skin areas that you might see on yourself or your loved ones require some expert evaluation. So thank you for joining me on The Body Show today, Dr. Luria. Thank you for having me. Now, dermatology is a specialty that requires a lot of training, and a lot of folks may not realize how many years of training it includes. How do you get to be a dermatologist? Well, uh, you start off with a medical degree. So in my case, I have a, an MD from Georgetown University. And then once you graduate from medical school, then comes your intern year, plus three more years dedicated to just dermatology. So it's four more years after earning your MD um, to uh, qualify to sit for the, the board exam to be a dermatologist. And, uh, and it's important to, um, to select somebody who is properly trained. And you can always look on the American Academy of Dermatology website to see if your doctor is a board-certified dermatologist. Now, when you mention the idea of board certification, you said four years of medical school, four years of additional training. But just finishing the training doesn't really make you board certified. You still have some more exams and things. Is that right? Correct. You have to take a board exam. And so that's what makes you board certified. And what you're suggesting is, hey, you know, you got to get the training to be able to provide the level of skin care that you've learned to do after all of these years. That is correct. And, um, and those of us who are board certified dermatologists maintain our certification with uh, continuing education and periodic exams. And that's another key point. You know, I'm in internal medicine, and so we have to recertify every 10 years. And as much as at first I thought, ah, oh, I don't want to have to do this, you know, they've really changed our board exams to be much more related to what you do every day. And in fact, I found myself when I was studying most recently to take the boards again, just really thinking about how the profession is practiced and how much has changed in the last, for me, you know, 20 years, I'm dating myself there. But I imagine the same thing mm -hmm. in the world of dermatology that, you know, it's not just, hey, is it cancer, is it not? But there's a lot of different skin manifestations of things that go on internally. And there are some nuances to the treatment that has occurred over the last couple of years that these treatments weren't even available when you and I were in med school. That's absolutely correct. And, uh, and again, like any other field, I think it is important to stay abreast of recent developments and incorporate that into your practice as you go. Well, I'm glad that you do because I definitely appreciate people who have kept up with the latest and understand when good practices need to continue and when sometimes we need to use our increased medical knowledge to make some changes and alter how we do things. So, you know, let's dive right in. The one thing that... Okay, so I'm going to admit it. I'm a little on the pale side of things. 
but I don't <laughs> have light colored eyes, so I have. I always wanted blue eyes. I never had them. My eyes are brown. But, you know, sometimes I'm not so good when I go out in the sun. So I know that I should be worried about skin cancer. There's a couple of different types of skin cancer. Can you tell us about the most common types and the ones we want to be concerned about? Let's start first talking about, my friend, the squamous cell, because that's something that, you know, I see a lot of folks with my complexion as they get older, and I hear about their numbers of trips to the dermatologist, and I think that's going to be me in another 20 years. Tell me about squamous cell skin cancer. I don't want to get it, but uh, what does it look like, and how would I know if I had it? Sure. Great question. So um, as you rightly mentioned, um, there are other kinds of skin cancer beyond the one we hear the most about, which is melanoma, which is one of the more deadlier versions of skin cancer. But um, basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers are far more common. And uh, squamous cell cancer, which you just asked about, is, in fact, the second most common skin cancer. And um, and it often will present with a um, crusty, sometimes sore, sometimes wart-like growth that generally will um, erupt over uh, weeks to months. And um, I think it's important to understand that squamous cell cancers largely originate from earlier precursor lesions, which are referred to as actinic keratoses, um, which are often shorthanded as just uh, precancers. Um, but these um, are uh, nearly ubiquitous in uh, older Caucasians who have spent their life in Hawaii. Um, they are rough, kind of sandpapery feeling, uh, um, sometimes a little sensitive, uh, uh, peppering the uh, chronically sun-exposed skin, like the face, the ears, the neck, the arms, the backs of the hands, the legs. And, um, and these uh, are part of a good uh, cancer prevention strategy when you address the numerous um, sort of precursors for squamous cell. So if you get rid of the AKs, the actinic keratoses, then you may decrease the chances that you'll develop squamous cell skin cancer. How, what percentage of AKs turn into squamous cell cancer lesions? Um, it's a great question. It uh, depends on uh, what study you look at. But um, we often refer to, as, uh, refer to something called field cancerization, which... Um, basically refers to the idea that when you have a lot of uh, sun damage, which has led to a lot of actinic keratoses, um, you are uh, basically in a fertile ground for the development of skin cancers. And um, in that sort of situation, uh, the skin cancers will start to come more and more frequently as you get older. And that's the time when you really need a dermatologist to address prevention strategies beyond, for example, just freezing uh, a few of the actinic keratoses with something like liquid nitrogen. And there are a variety of treatments, uh, both cream-based and procedure-based, which can address those precancerous lesions. Well, and you bring up a good point. You said if you spend a lot of time in the sun 
And this is one of those skin cancers that is directly related to changes that occur in the skin layer from exposure to UVA and UVB rays. Then, you know, that sun exposure, it's like you see one, now you see 30, and then they just all kind of erupt all at once. And if a certain percentage may be, you know, the hard the hard part about it is that I've heard you know, you don't know which one of these actinic keratoses is going to become cancerous. You can't really tell. You can't predict. So the idea of identifying them early and treating them early is to try and prevent any transformation to squamous cell skin cancer because that's that's one of the ways to reduce it. If you can just get rid of the AKs, then you might be able to decrease the likelihood of squamous cell skin cancer. What happens if you don't treat them? What are the, what are the long-term effects of squamous cell? Because some people feel like, hey, it's just on your skin. If I wait a while, it's just a small little bit of skin they're going to scrape off. But squamous cell can kind of do some damage. You're absolutely right. So um, uh, a squamous cell cancer untreated will typically not only uh, be locally destructive, meaning eat away at your nose or your ear or whatever uh, area it's grown on, but it will eventually metastasize, usually to local lymph nodes first, and then eventually will be fatal. This um, occurs somewhat slowly in the world of skin cancer, so um, usually taking uh, several years for that to occur. But um, before that, that squamous cell metastasizes, you will know it because it generally will be painful and, um, and growing. So it's not something that you'll, you'll easily miss. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Rebecca Luria. She mentioned that squamous cell is the second most common skin cancer. We are going to talk about the most common skin cancer. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have dermatology expert Dr. Rebecca Loria on the phone. And we are talking today about May being Skin Cancer Awareness Month. A lot of times people think skin cancer, melanoma, I don't have any brown spots, I don't have a problem. But there are other types of skin cancer to be aware of. And we just spoke a bit about squamous cell skin cancer. Rebecca, you decided that was the second most common skin cancer. What is the one that's occupying that number one spot. Great. So the most common uh, skin cancer is basal cell cancer. Our friends, the basal cells. Okay. Our friends, the basal cells. As opposed to the squamous cell cancers, which, as I mentioned, are often sore, faster-growing, crusty growth, um, basal cells move a little bit slower. They are not as likely to spread. They will be locally destructive over many years, but they don't tend to metastasize. Um, but the basal cells will, again, happen largely on chronically sun-exposed skin, like your head and neck yeah, and um, arms. Basal cells will often look like a pink spot or a non-healing sore, perhaps an ulcer, um, they are notorious for bleeding easily. So, for example, if when you are shaving your beard or toweling off your face uh, or 
uh, and you see a spot of blood on your on your towel, or if you wake up in the morning and there's a spot of blood on your pillow and you realize your ear has been bleeding, um, that should be a warning sign um, that you might have a basal cell cancer. And the treatment for basal cell skin cancer, once it's identified, if you say, hey, I've got this spot, doc, what should I do? And you go, oh, that doesn't look so good. It could be a basal cell. How does that get treated in the office? Wonderful question. So um, most of the time we will do a biopsy, which is a small skin scraping done with anesthesia, local anesthesia, to, um, to confirm our diagnosis by looking under the microscope. Depending on which tumor it is and the growth pattern of that tumor, that will um, help us determine whether or not it's something that can be uh, uh, treated by scraping it off, whether it needs to be fully removed surgically, um, whether or not it might even be able to be treated with something like a chemotherapy cream uh, locally. So it really depends on uh, the tumor type, the location, and the preferences of the patient. So good news, there's treatment. It can be topical. It may be surgical. But as with squamous cell, if you see something funny that looks weird, go get it checked out. Uh, Well summarized. All right. Well, speaking of weird, funny-looking things, let's talk about the ABCDs of melanoma because I realize that's something that a lot of people have heard about because it is the most deadly type of skin cancer out of the three. It is something that we really need to be cautious about. It may not be as common as the other two, but boy, if you get it, it can really wreak some havoc. So let's talk about melanoma. So if you have some brown spots on your body or if you have some areas that kind of look a little funny, what are the ways that we can help distinguish melanoma versus other types of skin cancer. There's this little mnemonic I like, the A, B, C, D, and E, I think has been added recently for exposure. But what does that mean? And and if I'm looking at some funky spots on my arms, what should I be looking for that would get me concerned? So um, as you well mentioned, melanomas, though not the most common kind of skin cancer, are one of the more deadlier uh, more, one of the more deadly versions of skin cancer. And um, the incidence of melanoma has been dramatically uh, rising over the past few decades. So it is important to um, check oneself and to have one's skin checked, particularly if you're concerned. So um, melanomas are uh, typically pigmented, which means that they are usually brown. And, um, and the ABCDEs, which you mentioned, um, are a good screening tool uh, that has been around for quite a while. It stands for, A is for asymmetry, meaning if one half of the lesion uh, does not look like the other half. B stands for border. So if the border is irregular, that's more concerning. C stands for color. If there are multiple colors within the same lesion, that's more concerning. D stands for diameter. If the diameter is bigger than six millimeters, which is about the size of a pencil eraser, it's more concerning. And E stands for evolving, which means that it's uh, making some sort of noticeable change over time. The ABCDs are, again, useful. Um, I also quite like the ugly duckling concept, meaning that when you are looking at your own skin, uh, you want to pay attention to the proverbial ugly duckling, meaning the one thing that looks different than all the rest. So sometimes uh, just putting that growth of concern into the context of what your body normally grows 
can be helpful. And whenever there's a question, absolutely go get it checked out. So I'm curious because you mentioned that, you know, we've seen an increase in the rates of melanoma over the last few decades. And yet that's the same time when we've really had a lot of improvement in our understanding of sunscreen. Mm. I'm curious because it seems like if if we're all doing what we should be doing with sunscreen, which, you know, I do admit that when we were all younger, I mean, you know, that may not have been the most popular thing to do. I think sunscreens were around. You know, I remember Coppertone. I still remember the smell of summer and Coppertone. But we were talking <laughs> SPF 4, maybe 8, maybe a 10. You know, now we've got some SPFs that go up to 100. It's pretty amazing. But why do you think mm-hmm. that the skin cancer, the rates of melanoma are increasing when the knowledge of how to prevent it has also expanded and increased? Are we just not doing what we're supposed to be doing? It's a wonderful question that I don't think is, is a totally straightforward answer. Is it that we're, we're exposing more of our skin when we go out? As our bathing suits have gotten skimpier, is it that we're, we're spending more time outdoors without protection um, is it that we are not properly using the tools that we know we should? Um, is it that we are detecting more skin cancers as uh, as people are are more aware of what to look for and um, and accessing their their healthcare resources? Um, it's a it's a complex question. I think the the bottom line is that skin cancer is the most common cancer in the United States, and um, and the current estimates are that about one in five Americans will get skin cancer in their lifetime, uh, which is a, a pretty staggering number. And and of that, uh, it's estimated about 80% of those are preventable by sun protection. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about sun protection, because the fact that this is one of the probably one of the higher rates of preventable cancers that we have suggests that we all need to know a lot more about sunscreen than maybe we do. There have been some recent changes with the ingredients in sunscreens and the safety considering the coral reef. So I know that there were some changes in what's allowed to be sold right now. Let's talk about sunscreen. What does the UVA, UVB rating mean? And could some sunscreens be just UVA and not B? Does that actually happen? Uh, not generally. They're usually qualified as, as, or classified rather as broad spectrum. But I think before we even get into the specifics about sunscreens, which is a big topic and deserves some attention, I want to first make the point that that is only a small part of the bigger picture of sun protection. And, um, and when you're thinking about UV exposure, um, it is radiation from sun and, uh, and solar Solar radiation or UV exposure um, is cumulative, and um, and so it's never too late, basically, to start protecting yourself, even if you, uh, you know, haven't been that great at protecting yourself previously. And when I say protecting yourself, what I mean is all the aspects of shielding your skin from additional UV radiation, and that includes sunscreen, certainly, but also uh, sun avoidance and sun protective clothing. So, for example, if you are already in the habit of putting a ball cap on when you're going out to, you know, do your outdoor activities, golfing or working in the yard, whatever it is, just making a simple switch of hat choice to one that shades around your ears and your neck is doing yourself a huge favor. 
Similarly, if you are um, uh, even just walking down the street, you could choose to, to walk on the shady side versus walking on the sunny side. You could move your, your hike to an earlier or later hour, set up your, your tennis date at a, you know, closer to dawn or dusk. Um, so, you know, choosing your activity timing so that you're avoiding peak sun hours. Choosing to do your activities in the shade when you can will also be more comfortable. And, um, and then wearing some protective clothing. Just this simple act of putting on a, a rash guard or a swim shirt when you go to the beach and, uh, and choosing perhaps to wear long sleeves when you go for your, your three hours out on the golf course um, can make a, a huge impact. And it is more cost effective and, um, and more effective to use sun protective clothing uh, um, in a given area than sunscreen by itself. All um, right. Well, that, oh. on that note, because I love the idea of sun avoidance and wearing the right clothing and wearing a hat, we're going to keep people in suspense. This is Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I have Dr. Rebecca Lurie on the line. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to demystify the different types of sunscreen while we also look at sun avoidance, changing our activity hours, and finding ways to keep our skin safe. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. This is Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Rebecca Lurie on the line. May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and so far we have talked about squamous cell skin cancer, basal cell skin cancer, malignant melanoma, and we're talking about some great easy tips on how to avoid overexposure to the sun. So right before the break, you convinced me, wear a hat, wear a shirt, pick different hours when you're going to enjoy outdoors, or choose the shady side of the street. I'm sold. I definitely want to do it. What are some other ways that we can protect ourselves from the sun? And I know sunscreen is involved in that. So what's the best type of sunscreen to, to, look, to look for and find? Great question. So I think sometimes when you go to the sunscreen aisle of the store, it's a little overwhelming. There are many choices out there and a lot of information and misinformation. So um, so in general, what you should look for in a sunscreen is going to be something that is SPF 30 or higher and labeled as broad spectrum. So you asked the question earlier about could it just cover one part of the UV spectrum versus another? The short answer is Yes, although most of them are broad spectrum in the United States. But SPF, which stands for Sun Protection Factor, specifically refers to UVB, which is ultraviolet B, which is the more carcinogenic cancer-causing of the rays, but certainly not the only rays that harm the skin. So a lot of our photoaging, for example, wrinkles, brown spots, that easy bruising on the forearms as we get older, um, those sorts of, and also skin cancer, in addition to the UVB, those sorts of changes are largely related to UVA. UVA comes right through your car window as you're driving. The windows only block out UVB. And, um, and so that's why you need a broad-spectrum sunscreen because, again, SPF, that number refers 
specifically to UVB. Well, that's fantastic. What I did not know is that UVA light comes through my car windows. So am I fooling myself if I feel like my my foundation that I wear or makeup has sunscreen in it? Am I thinking, oh, I'm protected when maybe I'm not? Actually, um, wearing makeup with sunscreen is a great way of protecting your face every day. And, um, and for those of us who don't wear makeup every day, it's still a good idea to put some sort of sunscreen um, particularly if you're not wearing a hat uh, as you're walking to and fro on your activities. But um, some sort of sunscreen on your face on a daily basis. Um, I alluded to the different kinds of sunscreen earlier, and now is a good time to talk about it. So there are basically um, two main categories of sunscreen ingredients. There are what are called the physical blockers, which are zinc and titanium, and there are a whole host of chemical blockers. And um, the difference is important uh, when you're choosing your sunscreen products because they have different pros and cons. So the, um, the physical blockers like zinc and titanium basically are particles that sit on the surface of the skin and reflect the light. They basically act like a little umbrella on your, on your skin. And the nice thing about these types of sunscreens um, is that they are... Uh, inert. Uh, they don't go into the skin. They um, have not shown any harm, any question of harm um, to the environment, and they are inherently broad spectrum by their nature. The challenge with physical sunscreens is um, that they rub off. So if you're in and out of water a lot, you're toweling off, you're sweating with your sport, then um, they really do need to be reapplied. The chemical sunscreens, of which there are a big variety, um, uh, they absorb into the skin, and they behave a little bit more like sponges, absorbing uh, wavelengths of uh, UV radiation kind of along a spectrum. And um, the nice thing about these sunscreens is that they um, tend to do better with uh, heavy sweating or in-and-out-of-water type activities. Um, the challenge with the chemical sunscreen is um, that there are still some unanswered questions as far as um, uh, what impacts they may have on the environment and on human health. Although I would like to uh, stress that as of right now, there is no known harm to human health, but that it is being investigated. And, um, and this is in the context of a 2019 study, which was uh, referred to as the maximal use study, um, where uh, subjects applied sunscreen four times a day over 75% of their body surface area, um, which I might add is is probably not what most of us are doing, to be honest. But um, with this maximal use, uh, the the sunscreen ingredients were detected in the bloodstream. Um, This was, uh, as I mentioned, about two years ago. So that tells us that it's in the bloodstream, but it does not tell us whether or not that actually causes any human harm. And that is being studied as we speak. So the jury is still out on that. So as of now, we don't know that it causes any harm, but we do know that these sunscreens protect from skin cancer, which causes quite a bit of harm. As far as the uh, safety about coral, I'd like to address that too. So again, this is 
specific to the chemical sunscreens, not not the physical sunscreens. So um, in a laboratory setting, certain sunscreens do show toxicity to coral. But again, this is um, still kind of a confusing subject as we don't know how much of an impact that actually makes in the real world in corals in the ocean. As the measured levels, for example, of oxybenzone in the Hawaiian seawater is um, more than a thousand times lower than what the toxicity was to the coral in the lab. And there are so many other um, causes of coral bleaching, uh, namely rising ocean temperatures and global warming and uh, ocean acidification from uh, uh, farming and wastewater and so on that goes into the ocean. So it sounds like the key is that we need to protect ourselves. If you're going outside, pick the right hours, pick the right time of day. May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and we have hopefully made you more aware. We'll have to follow up regarding the issues about sunscreens. We'll talk again, Dr. Loria. Thanks for being on the show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.